Good morning. My name is Paul Mumaw. I'm the lead pastor here at Genesis, and we want to welcome you today. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn to John chapter 16, verse 33. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one as a gift when you leave today. You can stop by our info hub, and, and we'll send you on your way with one. I encourage you to bring your Bible every week and uh, follow along with us. But we'll begin in John 16, 33, but I can't go ahead without saying, wow, last Sunday, lots of fun. We had 29 people baptized here at Genesis, I think 17 adults, like eight kids or eight students and four kids. I think that adds up to 29. It's close. You get the point or whatever. Lots of noisemakers and craziness in here. Uh, No noisemakers this morning, please. Uh, but, uh, But good stuff. Lots of, lots of great stuff. But you've got your Bibles. Turn to John chapter 16, verse 33. Here's the thing. You and I are going to face some challenging times and challenging seasons in our life here on this earth. Uh, and you need to know that as, as we start. I mean, if you live long enough, uh, you're going to go through uh, some difficult times and seasons. And some of you are right in the middle. You're in the thick of it all right now. Uh, for me to say difficult times, uh, you don't have to uh, spend a lot of time wondering what that's like, what that looks like, trying to get yourself there. Uh, it's there, it's present in your life. And, and you're hurting, you're anxious. You know, you might be asking questions like, what's next? Uh, what could possibly go wrong after this? Uh, where do I turn for hope? Now, it's important to realize that Jesus never promised us that life would be easy. He, he never made that promise. And I hope that I've never given you that impression And if another pastor or another Christian's given you that impression, I apologize for that. The truth is that living as a Christian will never guarantee that things of this life will fall all nice and neatly into place. That's not a promise that Jesus has made. In fact, sometimes the exact opposite is true. You give your life to Jesus and you might be inviting some chaos, uh, some turbulence into your life because it just kind of happens. And John chapter 16 verse 33 is an important verse for us. And it's good for you to know that that here Jesus is on his way to the cross. Uh, He is near his uh, crucifixion. He's ready to give up his life on the cross for all of humanity. And right before he dies, he says these words to his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 33. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. Now let's just unpack this verse for just a moment if we can. And I, I want to go through it just kind of phrase by phrase and, and you can follow along in your own Bibles if you have them. Jesus starts off by saying, hey, I've told you these things. And, and immediately my mind goes to, okay, he's been saying some things that all come up and all lead to this point. And, and on your own sometime, you might spend some time even this week or later on today just reading through John chapter 14 and John chapter 15 and listening to all of these things things that jesus had been saying to his disciples that adds up to john 16 33 things like i am the vine and you are the branches and jesus says if you want to live you have to remain in me you've got to abide in me he he says apart from me you can do nothing you can try all you want in this world to do these things on your own but ultimately if you're apart from me there's nothing you can do or he says this you didn't choose me but guess what i chose you I chose you as a son. I, I chose you as a daughter. He, he says, as much as the Father loves me, uh, my love is the same for you. He, he's talking to you and I there, that, that his love is just as great. It's just as deep. And then he said this. He says, I, I'm going away soon, but here's the great news. 
because I'm going away, I will send to you another comforter, or your Bible might say a counselor. And if you notice as you read through uh, these chapters here that it's, it's a capital letter. Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit. He's talking of God himself. He's making this promise that when I ascend into heaven, I will send one to you. Those of you who put your trust in Jesus, I will send one to live inside of you. The Holy Spirit, God himself, will come. It's actually to your advantage that I leave because God himself will come and live inside of you. Now, why is that? important? Why was it important that Jesus said these things? Well, it's the next phrase. He says, so that in me, you will have peace. Now there are two important words in that phrase there that I'd encourage you to underline in your Bible if you have it with you. And that is the words in me. Jesus says in me, you will have peace, not in this world, not the stuff that you find or gain from this world, not in your mutual fund, not in the clothes that you wear, the cars that you drive. You won't find it in your marriage. You won't even find it in attending church. Peace only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus says, you must be in me. You know, peace comes from Jesus. Now, why is that important? Well, it leads to the second part of the verse. It's the troubling part, but it's the part we have to read. We have to acknowledge. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. Fact. You will. And some of you are there right now. And if you're fortunate enough for whatever reason that you've escaped you know, trouble in your life, it will come. And I'm not talking about turning an ankle or even finding out that you've got to put a new roof on when you, you know, hoped you could put a second layer or something. You know, I'm talking about overwhelming trouble, the kind of trouble that shakes you to your very core. It it caused some people to ask questions like, where is God in all of this? Does he exist? Is he good? Does he care about me? And Jesus said, it's going to come. You're going to experience this overwhelming trouble, this this brokenness that's a product of a broken world. But then he says, take heart. And I know it's difficult for us to understand what those words mean, but but Jesus said, take heart. And I don't think he just kind of whispered them. I think he shouted them with confidence, but take heart. He says, get this, find hope in this. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. You know, no matter what happens, no matter what you go through, no matter what you may face in this life, I have overcome the world. Sin is defeated. Satan is crushed. There is a hope and his name is Jesus. Now, there are two very important promises in this verse here that I think we need to be aware of. And, and these, this verse will kind of serve as a thread for us over the next few weeks as we walk through this series called Hope, kind of tying all things together. And, and I hope that you'll come. I hope that you'll keep coming. I hope that you'll invite some friends that you maybe really feel like could could benefit from a series like this right now. Um, do some reading on your own. Do some praying. Do some study on your own. But but what does it look like for us to embrace you know this hope? The, these two promises that Jesus makes here in John sixteen thirty three says to say you will have trouble. It's going to come if it's not already. But the second promise is a good one, and that is that there is a hope, and His name is Jesus. Jesus is our hope. And my prayer, again, is that you would know this hope and, uh, and maybe just even take some time to open up your heart every morning before you come in here and say, God, you've got me. You've got my attention. Uh, what is it that you want to speak into my life? Do you ever feel <clears throat> unlucky? All right, you ever, do you ever, you ever, let's put it like this. Do you ever feel like you're just like a magnet of sorts for trouble? You know, I mean, if there's trouble out there to be found, to be discovered, if there's some misfortune, if there's a crisis out there to be experienced, it's going to find you. 
You know, it's like on your forehead, you have, you know, this word, you know, printed unlucky, you know, come find me, you know, I'm going to experience at some point or another. Well, there's a story I was reading this past week, a guy by the name of John Line. Um, I don't know John, he's probably a good guy, looks a little upset in this picture, but it's the best one that I could find of him. Uh, John Line is known as the unluckiest man in all of Britain. And uh, if you read his story, it's an interesting story, but it was just simply entitled Britain's Unluckiest Man. Uh, As a child, he fell off a horse, and while he was lying on the ground before he could get up, a delivery van actually rode over him. Uh, And I don't know what part of him or what was hurt or destroyed, but a passing delivery van ran over him. As a teen, he fell out of a tree and broke his arm. And then get this, on his way home from the hospital, the vehicle that he was riding in was in an accident and he broke the other arm. All right, all in the same day. Uh, Since then, he has nearly drowned. Uh, He was injured in a rock slide. He lost eight teeth when hit in the mouth with a slingshot. Uh, He fell, fell down a manhole cover or the manhole, the cover obviously wasn't on, and uh, he has been struck by lightning, not once, but twice. John is now in his mid-50s. He suffered through 16 major accidents, and when interviewed for this particular story, he says, hey, I don't think there really is any reason or explanation for it all. It's just happened. But he says, and I quote, I do try and be careful on Friday the 13th. So you think you're unlucky, um, uh, top this guy, try and top this guy. But, but uh, ser- on a serious note, I, I know uh, that some of you are going through some really challenging times right now. And, and as your pastor, I, I've had the privilege of hearing some of your stories, and we've been praying for you as a church or praying for you as a staff. Um, but if I don't know your story, I, I think it's safe to assume that we probably could never go wrong in talking about a subject like hope. Um, because we all do go through tough times, and, and, and I think these are probably even some very challenging times right now, whether it be something to do with a health issue or especially the economy. Uh, we read about the economy. We hear stories about the economy all the time. Uh, and it might be you. It might be you uh, fr- affecting you directly, but maybe not. I mean, maybe life is good for you, but it's your children, and, and they're going through a really rough time, or mom and dad are going through a rough time, and, and, and it's almost the same and sometimes even worse, you know, when you watch your kids Uh, going through a very difficult season. But what is it for you right now? You know, for some, for you, maybe even here today, maybe it's a health-related matter. Uh, It's it's depression or it's just anxiety that you can't seem to to overcome. Just wondering, you know, what does this week hold or, or what does this next year hold for us? Uh, maybe for you, it's, it's a, a struggle with an eating disorder. You know, and there are times in your life where you seem to get a hold of it, but there are other times in your life where it just, it kind of spirals out of control. Uh, maybe you're trying to get pregnant in, in your family and you watch around you and it seems like for everyone else, no big deal. But for you, it's just the one thing that you and your spouse keep coming back to. And why is why, why isn't this happening for us? Or, or your dad has cancer or a friend in your family. Maybe it's a family issue. And looking back on it now, uh, when you had young kids and you thought it was hard, uh, it's nothing compared to what you're going through today. And when you think about raising a teenager or raising, uh, or, you know, sort of raising a kid who's off to college or whatever, I mean, it, it's a nightmare, you know, compared to what you went through with, with younger kids. Uh, it could be a relationship thing. Uh, maybe you've been married for some time now, but you know that you haven't loved this person in five, ten years. And Maybe they feel the same or intimacy is completely gone. It's never been this bad before. Or maybe you're to the place where you just know that living the single life stinks. 
and you keep praying and you keep waiting for the right person to come along, but it's not happening for you. It could be finances. We know that a lot of people are struggling with finances right now or needing hope in this area of money. You know, you took a big pay cut with this new job that you took and your family's trying to learn to manage or buying all that fun stuff was good and uh, uh, buying all that stuff was fun in the, in the good season, but now you're, you're in this season and you're just overwhelmed by debt and, or you can't find work. Uh, we, we could sit here forever and we could think of all of the different examples, but life can get complicated. And Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. And whether you like it or not, whether you like these words that, that Jesus spoke, let's at least give him credit for warning us, for calling it what it is. And, but let's not dwell on it. Now, let's, let's not miss the best part. It's the most important message when Jesus says there is a hope. There is a hope. And that's exactly what some of you need to hear this morning, that there is a hope that if, if you remain in me, Jesus says, there is a hope. Now, the last thing that I want to do in a series like this is try and sugarcoat it all, you know, that every week I'm going to give you something cute that you can print on a bumper sticker, you know, because we do that as Christians, you know, like, oh, you're having trouble, well, smile, God loves you, you know, that'll do it, you know, that, that's in the Bible, or uh, just trust God and he'll turn those scars into stars, you know, that, that'll make a good t-shirt, or pray harder and God will turn that frown upside down, you know, Let's pray. We're done. Yeah, is that all we need? No, I promise you not to do that. But, but hear this. The answer right now for you is so clear and it's so obvious. And I, I think we can simplify it, but sometimes I think because it's such a simple message, we kind of discount it in that, well, it can't be true. And that is that Jesus is our hope. I'll tell you right now, that's where we're headed every week for the next few weeks of this series. Jesus is our hope. And we've got to cling to Him. And when times get tough, we've got to run to God. We've got to find Jesus. And if that's what you're looking for, you're in the right place here this morning. I want to show you a story from the Bible real quick. And if you want to turn over to 1 Kings chapter 18, uh, we're going to skip around and kind of tell this story quickly. But in 1 Kings 18 and 19, I want to show you a story that I think best illustrates maybe where most of us are today or have been at some point uh, in our life. But we're going to read the story of Elijah. Now, Elijah lived during Old Testament times. He was a prophet, but to just call him a prophet really isn't to do it justice. I mean, uh, some say that he was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, this man called Elijah. I mean, he's like the Peyton Manning, you know, uh, of all prophets. Well, Elijah was close to God. He lived very close to God, and I don't want you to miss this important detail because as the greatest prophet and a man who was known for living close to God, he went through some really difficult and challenging times. And so let's just be reminded of that. You can be as close to God as you want, and Jesus' promise still comes true. In this world, you will have trouble. We're all going to face these troubles in the world, and Elijah went through them. But God did all sorts of amazing things through this man. And one of the most well-known stories, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, is the time that God sent Elijah to the Israelite people. Now, the Israelite people were known as the people of God, all right? All of the people, the king and queen, every bit of them. But they had turned their backs, they had turned their eyes away from God, and at this particular time in history, had turned their focus to a false god, a god who was known by the name of Baal. Well, Elijah comes on the scene, 
And he gathers a group of people at Mount Carmel. And as you read the story, and you can read it for yourself, there are a number of people that gather there, maybe even thousands of Israelite people that gather. And Elijah is standing on, on, on one side, and the prophets of Baal, and the Bible says maybe as many as 450 of them, gathered in this place. So we kind of have this UFC kind of showdown, you know, kind of a thing that's getting ready to take place. We've got Elijah on one side, the prophets of Baal on the other. And, and Elijah kind of steps forward to lay the ground rules. Like, okay, here's what we're up to, folks. Uh, He says to the prophets of Baal, I want you to build an altar and and take your time in doing so. You build an altar. I'm going to do the same on my side. And then when I say go, here's what's going to happen. You will have your opportunity, prophets of Baal, to call on your God, Baal, to send down fire from heaven, to send the altar ablaze. All right, you do that. And then when it's my turn, I'll do the same. And and here's what I know, Elijah says, only one God's going to respond. And so we'll just let it prove who is the one and the only true God. And and so the story continues. That's what happens. Uh, It's a great story. And the prophets of Baal, they they start screaming. They cry. They spend all day. Elijah gives them all this time. It says they're slitting their arms and everything. And nothing happens because Baal doesn't exist. He's a false god. And they realize it. And and they are proved wrong on the spot in front of thousands of Israelites. Well, on the other side, then Elijah steps forward humbly. It's a great story. It's a great picture. He builds this trench around the altar. He takes water and he starts pouring it over everything just to prove himself even more so. And he calls on the one true God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of heaven, to bring, to send down fire from heaven. And God responds in this moment. The altar is set on fire. And everyone knows and realizes in this moment that God exists, that he is the one and only true God. Now for Elijah, it's a great day. For the prophets of Baal, it's a horrible day. The Bible says that they were executed on the spot, completely destroyed. But Elijah, it's, an, it's a good day. You know, this is one that you, you, know, you put on the resume. You know, you want to make sure that, you know, you go for that next job. Hey, I want to I tell you about this particular event in my life. But here's what's, here's what's interesting about a story. Just 24 hours later, in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 3 and 4, you only need to read a few words. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah... He left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Now, when I read this here, you know, and if I would be new to this, I've read this story before, but maybe it's the first time that you've read it. You can't help but read this and go, what? I mean... What, what, what's happening here? I'll take that guy's place. You know, I'd love to see God prove himself, you know, with, with, with fire in a moment like this. But, you know, what's happening to this guy? I mean, this is Elijah. This is God's man. I mean, the greatest prophet of all time. He's just witnessed the supreme act with the people of Israel repenting on the spot. You know, it can't get any better, but now he's running for his life. Well, here's an important detail in the story. There was a queen, the queen of Israel living at the time. Her name was Jezebel. Jezebel had a bit of a reputation for being somewhat of a wicked woman. And uh, she put a bounty out on Elijah's head. She didn't like the fact that he humiliated uh, these false prophets, this false god. And so um, she wants to cut his head off. And Elijah freaks out and he starts running because she had the reputation of doing things like this. And so he really wasn't overreacting. But when we get here to, to, to uh, chapter 19, verse 4, Elijah's in the wilderness and if you read the details here, it says one night he parks it under a tree. It's called a broom tree. Now, this isn't like an oak 
where, you know, you could put a nice tent up underneath it and, and have a good night's sleep. Uh, I was reading in one review that a broom tree is really much more like a shrub, uh, very low-lying, close to the ground. And so uh, I picture Elijah kind of curled up underneath this shrub, maybe even in the fetal position, up around this stump. And obviously he's having a bit of a conversation with God here, asking all sorts of questions, saying things like, I can't do this. I've been through a lot of junk already, and I'm, I can't get through this one. Uh, I'll never make it. Where's God? And then he says this, probably be better off if I died. Take my life. Have you ever asked a question like that before? Maybe even gone through such a, a rough time, maybe you're there right now, that you went all the way to the edge, that even in your own mind and your heart you'd be willing to say, I wonder what it'd be like to just die and not have to be a part of this any longer. I mean, that's where we find Elijah. Let's let him be a real man, all right, even though he gets his name written in the Bible, all right? We got a real guy here, and, and he's out of hope. And little did he realize that, that God was kind of taking him on a journey, that he was present in this journey. And if you take the time to read First Kings 18 and 19, it's a great story, but let me tell you a little bit more how it ends. Uh, Elijah just starts walking. He gets up from the shrub and he walks and, and he probably runs at time. But, but the scriptures say that for 40 days, and I don't know how far you can travel on foot in 40 days in the wilderness, but he went a long way and he ends up at this place Mount, uh, called Mount Horeb. And, and there's a whole history behind Mount Horeb that we won't get into. But he climbs the mountain and he finds a cave and the Bible says that he crawls inside of this cave. I don't know if you've done any spelunking before. I haven't done any spelunking, but I did go on a cave tour one time. Uh, we were down at the Mammoth Caves in southern Kentucky. Really kind of cool, pretty fascinating place, great story. And uh, we went down into this cave on this particular tour. And you go deep into the cave, and it's cold, uh, and it's damp, uh, and it gets very tight and compressed at times. And then like any good cave tour, you know, you're in there, and at some point they turn out the lights. You know, they want to just give you that moment where you can experience and understand what it would be like to be in there without any electricity. And I remember when those lights were off thinking, what would it be like to spend the night in here with no lights? And how frightening would be every noise, every thought that would go through your mind. I wonder how many of you here this morning feel like you're kind of holed up in a cave. And you've kind of created that place and it's a place that you've run to or tried to escape to. But maybe you're so far out of hope right now. You're so overwhelmed by the circumstances of your life that you sort of feel like Elijah. You're lost and, and frightened and, and you're hiding out in this cave and you're wondering, you know, what happens next? What could happen next? You know, and the dangerous part of that is that when we get holed up into these caves of of despair, we start turning to all sorts of things to help us cope. You know, things that are not healthy and they're not right. I mean, for some, you know, they quickly turn to bad habits. It's so easy to turn to bad habits when we're desperate, when we're tired, when we're frustrated. You know, for some, it's drugs, you know, and not even the most obvious drugs, but was reading just the other day at, at the at the rapid rate, the rapid increase of abuse of even prescription drugs. 
you know, things that people can get, get a hold of, you know, that, that just kind of allow you to escape, to get away from reality, you know. But again, it could be other things too, like overeating. You know, some people will turn to pornography or gambling, or maybe it's an unhealthy relationship that you go back to over and over again, even though you know it's not right, and even though you realize that it's unhealthy. I mean, we have the tendency to, to get bogged down into these caves of despair where it's all about self-pity, where we think, you know, things, things couldn't get any worse, or why is this always happening to me, or why is God out to get me? And so we look to all sorts of things to escape the reality of our situation and the reality of our circumstances. And in many ways, that's where Elijah is. I mean, he's drowning in self-pity and anxiety and depression, and he's got concerns about the loyalty of Israel. He's got concerns about his own life. He's tired of this emotional roller coaster and this game, and he's running, and now he's hiding out, and he's fearing for his life in this cave, and he's all alone. Or is he? I mean, I, I think... He thinks he's all alone, but, but is he? And here's what Elijah is about to realize, that he wasn't alone, that God couldn't be closer in that moment. And here's the good news for you this morning. You may think you're all alone, and there's no one out there to help you, and that no one understands your story, and God is right there. The Bible says that God is close to the brokenhearted. There's something special about that word close in that particular context that maybe even means a closeness that, that's just unusual that we don't normally experience. But he is close to the brokenhearted. He knows every tear, you know, that we've shed. I mean, you, you're not alone. You know, God is there even in your cave of despair too. And, and God speaks to Elijah in First Kings 19, verse 11. It says, the Lord said, go out. Here's what I want you to do, Elijah. He speaks directly to him. Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. That's interesting. It says, then after the wind was, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then in verse 12, it says, after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Now, what's God up to? And it's a little hard to understand what God is up to here, and you have to presume a bit. It's a little uh, difficult to understand, but here's what I think. I think God knows and realizes that Elijah had taken his eyes and taken his focus off of God. And he knows this and he realizes that he's already forgotten. And because of that, he's lost and, and he's lost hope. And now all of these powerful acts of nature going on around him. And Elijah's probably thinking to himself, great, it couldn't, you know, could it get worse? You know, I've already got the present reality of what's taking place in my life. And now I'm about to be destroyed by a natural disaster. You've been there before, you know, all the things that are going wrong and then the brakes, you know, mess up or the transmission goes out or something breaks in the house. And you wonder, I mean, could it get any worse? I mean, do I, do I really need this? And so Elijah's about done. And then God did something awesome. And looking again at verse 12 and then into verse 13, it says, After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And then get this, And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out, and he stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? And notice that the wind didn't force him out of the cave. The fire didn't force him out of the cave. The earthquake didn't force him out of the cave. It was the gentle whisper. It was the voice of God in that moment that humbled Elijah, that reminded him of God's presence. And with that, he was willing to stand up and walk out of the cave and stand before God. 
where if you continue reading, this awesome conversation takes place where, where Elijah's hope is restored. The circumstances of his life do not change. And I think it's very important to note that. I mean, the bounty is still out on his head. Elijah is still frustrated about the loyalty of Israel. But in that moment of restored hope, of remembering, you know, of finding God and realizing that I had taken my eyes off of God, I had taken my focus off of Jesus. You know, when life gets overwhelming, you and I, we need to find God. That, that ought to always be the automatic, the first place that we run. We've got to find God. And some of you, some of you need God this morning. And, and I wonder what would happen in your life today if you would allow for just a moment, maybe even this place to be the place where you encounter God for your particular story, your particular season, the circumstances of your life right now. What if this became your cave where God got your attention in a powerful way? It doesn't mean that your circumstances will change, but it means that you'd be able to get up from here today and walk out these doors and realize that my hope is in Jesus Christ, that Jesus is my hope and he can see me through this. He'll walk with me through this. I have a few promises for you this morning, things that I believe that we can count on from God. You know, what could God say to you to remind you of, of, his, of his great love, to, to remind us of the hope that is available to us when, when we're desperate for it? Uh, they're brief. Uh, if you want to take notes, I'll give these to you. The first one is this. He loves you. You know, the Bible says that God is a God of love, that he loves us. Uh, when the bottom falls out of your life, and maybe it already has for you, you can embrace this truth that God loves you. He, he gave you Jesus, and Jesus went to a, the cross as a man, and you only have to look so far to see through the cross the love that has been displayed for us, the love that has been made available to us in Jesus. First John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10 says this, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. Remember, not apart from him, but that we might be able to live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, here's the thing. Christianity might not answer the the, the question, might not provide for you an answer to every difficult question that you have. Uh, It's just a fact. You know, this side of heaven, we won't answer all of our great questions, but we can be clear and confident in this. When, when life is about to take you, when you feel like you're about to be overwhelmed, you can look at the cross. Uh, you can find the cross. You can look to Jesus. And again, it might not make sense of everything that you're experiencing, but you will know this, that you are loved by God and that Jesus sent or Jesus came to this earth for you. The second one is another great truth, but it's, uh, it's a little difficult to get your mind around. And it's this, that that he allows freedom, but maintains control. Our God, he, he allows freedom, but maintains control. Now, it's difficult to understand how God can allow freedom and then at the same time uh, remain omnipotent, to remain all-powerful. But here's what I believe, that God allows freedom in this world. He allows life to happen, but he is always in control. He always has absolute control. You know, Jesus was crucified on the cross. And in Acts chapter 2, it says that he was crucified by wicked men. That wicked men put him up on the cross and they put nails through his hands and through his feet. Now, historians say that of all of the methods of execution in history, crucifixion was by far the, was the most brutal, very barbaric. Uh, obviously a horrible thing to experience, 
but an even very difficult and barbaric thing to to witness, to see firsthand. And, And suppose you're standing at Calvary, okay, on the day when Jesus is crucified. You've followed him. You've listened to him. You've witnessed everything that he has said and done. And in that moment, if you're a disciple, you can't help but watch Jesus being crucified on the cross, thinking to yourself, this is all spiraling out of control. I mean, what, what could possibly be any worse than this particular moment here? But the awesome good news is this. In that moment, God was in absolute control. I mean, it was as exactly as he had planned. It was his ultimate plan. It, when it appeared that he had lost control, to, to think that it was just the opposite, that God was in absolute control. He, God is never out of control in your life. You know, there has never been a moment in your life when God was sitting on his hands, when he had turned away, when he had taken a break from your life. Now, I know that doesn't answer every question that you might have, but I hope that you will hear the truth in this, that while he does allow freedom to exist, there is a new reality in this world, this reality made available by Jesus. God is always in control. He is in absolute control. And that's why we have to find Jesus. That's why we have to cling to Jesus for our hope. The third thing is this, that he can take the worst and he can make the very best with it. God does that. He can take the very worst and he can use it for good. You know, think of how many, again, stood there and good, on Good Friday and thought, this is the worst case scenario. But God can take the worst and use it for good. Uh, this past week, if... If you're on Facebook, if you're a part of the Genesis Facebook group, you might have gotten a message from me that said, hey, I just, I'd love to hear your story. And that's kind of an open invitation anytime. And if you would want to send that to me through email or uh, you know, send me a Facebook message, um, I, I, just, I was wanting to know, you know, tell me what you're struggling with a little bit. Just help me understand. Um, talk to me about where you find hope and, and how you have found hope in Jesus. And, and I got some replies from a couple, and, and I'd love to hear from you. I promise I won't share every story, and I won't share your story without, without getting your permission either. I would never do that. But, but I wanted to share one story with you today, just a girl that I've just gotten to know through email and a phone call this week. Uh, but she was kind enough to share her story with me th- this past week. Uh, Sarah Bosing, some of you may know her, is a, a student at Anderson University. And again, I haven't met her yet, but she started attending Genesis back in the spring and, and will be here soon. And, um, but, but I love her story. And and I want to read just a little bit for you. She writes, When my mom was 25 weeks pregnant with me, uh, she was told that I would not live through the night due to congestive heart failure and that I had two different medical conditions. One was always fatal and the other was almost always fatal. My parents were told multiple times that I would die and that if I was born, I would be severely mentally and or physically handicapped. Obviously, God had other plans for me and I made my grand entrance on September 8th, 1989. It was determined that I had suffered extensive kidney damage, and most of my early years were spent trying to save my life. In April 2001, I was given six months to live without dialysis or a kidney transplant. However, God made a way and provided the miracle I needed, and on August 30th, 2001, I had my kidney transplant eight days before my 12th birthday. Things went very well for a while after transplant until 2005. After extensive hospital stays and testing, I was diagnosed with an unknown immune system disorder, 
on November 6, 2006 as a 17-year-old junior in high school. I began a type of monthly immune system replacement therapy given by infusion called IVIG on Tuesday, November 14, 2006. And on February 20th, 2007, I switched to weekly treatments that I performed myself at home. At a routine visit with the immunologist on January 10, 2008, the doctor informed my mom and I that unless Jesus returned or worked a miracle, I would remain in weekly treatment until I am made whole and complete in the presence of my Savior. However, over spring break 2009, my medical team agreed to let me trial off treatment and see what my immune system did when left to its own devices. After two years, five months, and three weeks of treatment, I received my last infusion on Sunday, April 26, 2009. Unfortunately, my immune deficiency returned. My relapse was confirmed on Wednesday, October 7, 2009, after over five months of treatment. I had a permanent IV line placed in my chest and received the first treatment in my relapse protocol on Saturday, October 17, 2009. And after lots of prayers and a second opinion, I once again received my last IVIG treatment on March 11, 2010 and returned to IU Medical Center this past June to have several immune system tests run. I received word of my remission on July 19, 2010, and the decision was made to stop treatment for good. Although I have received my earthly healing from immune deficiency, I still have a long way to go. I will keep my line for a while and will follow up with immunologists for the next year to ensure that my immune systems continue to grow stronger and that I do not relapse a second time. Now, as I read this and as I talked with her, I really tried to put myself in her shoes of what it would be like to get good news and then bad news and then good news again and then the bad news and then hopeful news and then discouraging news and now to arrive to this place and wonder, okay, what next? You know, how long will this last? And her faith and her hope was really just an incredible story just in sharing with her over email again and and talking with her on the phone. And I know some of you know her personally. Um, But I also thought about her parents and and tried to put myself in her parents' shoes. And, you know, being a parent now, it's so much different just even to watch your kids suffer and uh, just even those anxious moments and having a young child. So as Sarah and I were talking with this past week, I said, can you comment a little bit more on hope? I mean, how would you describe hope? Here's what she said. I believe that hope find its source in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because Christ defeated sin and death by his perfect sacrifice, we can grab hold of an unshakable, eternal hope. Anything else, I believe, is a false hope. And remember, Jesus said, in me. I mean, if your hope is in me, there will be peace. If you put your hope in other things, no peace. Second, if I were trying to define hope, she writes, I would phrase it something like this. Hope is an unshakable belief in the character of God that he is all-knowing and all-good and in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that leads us to the knowledge that no matter how bad things get here, our sovereign God is in control and we will have ultimate and eternal victory through the cross and the blood of Christ's sacrifice. And then hear this and then I'll, we'll wrap up. I understand that Jesus did call me into a life of suffering when he called me to follow him. And what I am saying is this. My God can do all things. Nothing is impossible for him. He has all power and all might with which to heal me here on this earth, even within the next few months. He created my inmost being. Therefore, with a word or a thought, it could be made instantly whole. I believe this wholeheartedly. 
And then she says, and so I have hope. Not a wishy-washy when we all get to heaven hope, but a here and now hope. A my God is mighty to save, but if he does or he does not, what is it to me? I serve the Lord of hosts. And this is my number one concern, not my safety, not my comfort, not even my own life. It's his name and his renowned. It's that kind of hope and that kind of hope that can stare down any moment and that kind of hope can celebrate and that kind of hope can be fully present and fully alive. What an awesome story. A story still being written and um, it's just cool to know that Uh, Just back a few years ago, Sarah and her family started a ministry called Break the Gray, where they now go into uh, children's hospitals and serve pediatric cancer patients and their families. And they throw parties throughout the year, just encouraging children and their families and and their friends. Uh, And this ministry has expanded from uh, Cosair Children's Hospital in Louisville and now uh, includes Riley Hospital in Indianapolis. and, And just awesome you know, to see God working in this story and what hope really looks like. I mean, what it means to put feet on hope. What do I see in, in Sarah's story? I see God's ending love. I, it's a God who allows freedom, you know, even, even though that's difficult to understand at times, but in that freedom, he maintains control. And the last thing is this, and, and then we'll wrap up. Um, God is writing a great story. And we can't understand it all, but one day we will, that God is writing a great story, and with every bit of junk, every single bit of it, it's all pointing to Jesus. It's all intended to point people to Jesus, that that even though life hurts, there is a hope that we can find in Jesus Christ. And so that's our hope, just like I promised you in the very beginning. Jesus is our hope. And Hebrews 6 reminds us that Jesus has gone through the veil for us and offered himself as a final sacrifice. And I know that that might be a little complicated to understand, but it just means this, that he went to the cross on our behalf and he gave his life so that we could have life. Um, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 says this. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul firm and secure. I have up here on stage with me an anchor. I don't have a fancy story to tell about it. Nothing to try and get you cry. It's an anchor. And you know what it's used for. Uh, Is your hope anchored to the cross of Jesus Christ this morning? It's a yes or no question. Let's pray. God, we acknowledge and know and understand that there are many, every single one of us in some way, shape, or form that are looking for hope this morning. And so we invite you to do your great work. In fact, what I'm going to do right now as we're praying is if you're here this morning and you need hope uh, and you know what that looks like in your life right now, Uh, You just know, hey, I'm qualified. I need hope no matter what your story. I want to invite you to stand wherever you are. Uh, Just do that as an act of obedience, just as a way of coming before God and saying, I need hope. Uh, Just stand wherever you are this morning so that I can pray with you and for you. Don't be shy in that. Uh, Thank you uh, for those that are standing right now, wherever you are. Uh, Don't be embarrassed. Just stand and and let me pray for you. Let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, we come to you this day uh, because we have nowhere else to turn. And we come to you, the very anchor of our souls.
and we find confidence in knowing that you know every single detail of our story. Uh, You know all of the pain. Uh, You know all of our frustrations. You know our anxiety. You know our heart. You know every question that we've ever asked in our mind. And so we stand before you today putting it all out on the line because we have no other place to turn but to turn to you. And Jesus, we pray in this moment that you would give us the sense of your presence today, that what you did for Elijah at Mount Horeb thousands of years ago, that you can do even this morning right now in this place, reminding us of your presence and your work and the hope that you've made available to our very own lives. And we ask, God, would you do that today? God, would you do that today in an awesome and a mighty way? God, would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to trust you uh, and your love and your power? Uh, We don't want to turn to other things of this world, but we want to remain in you. And and we know that nothing can frighten or worry us if if we stand with you. And so, God, we, we drop our anchors at the foot of the cross this morning, and we pray that you would give us the assurance that you will see us through. And we put it all out on the line for you today, God. We put up our faith and our trust. We put all of our hope in you. And we pray that you would hear our prayers today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things this morning. Amen. Hey, let's all stand together. And as we close, as we sing this final song, uh, the question really is a simple one. Uh, Where is your hope this morning? Uh, Is your hope in Jesus Christ? He truly is the anchor of our souls.